you, Billy. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Kirkpatrick. And what a beautiful morning it is. You can see the sun just shining in through the windows in our church here. I know a lot of our children and young people have been off this week on half term, some of us adults too, but we'll not be too smug about it. Um, I hope you've all had a fab week off and you've enjoyed the change of pace and are feeling well rested ahead of going back to school this week. My name is Emma Kerr and it's my privilege to be leading our service of worship here in Kirkpatrick this morning. We'll be joined with a few others. Um, There's going to be an update from our student ministry. Paul's going to be preaching for us and Gareth will be leading a few announcements later in the service. As we gather to worship this morning, we come to praise our God. Our call to worship is from Psalm 103. Praise the Lord, my soul, all my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. I was reading some words from John Piper from this psalm this week. He suggested that David at the beginning of this psalm is prodding, prompting, and urging himself to praise God when perhaps he doesn't really feel like it. So David prods himself, Praise the Lord, my soul. Remember his benefits. Speak of his wonders. Tell of his greatness. And it's the same for us too. We come to worship him, prodding ourselves. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Come on, soul, where are you? Why do you sleep before this amazing God? Why are you dull and sluggish? Wake up. Look at what God has done. Look at what he is like. So let us come. Let us come and praise the Lord. He might have been far from our thoughts this week. Other things have come first. But this act of worship is true and genuine. When we realize our shortcomings and that God is holy and through his grace we are saved. So let's sing our first hymn from a grateful heart and remember all that he has done for us. Let us pray. Lord God, we profess our faith in you. Your love, your patience, and your forgiveness overwhelm us. We cling to your promises and celebrate your goodness. You're compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. We know we are sinful. We often forget to pray. We forget to trust you. We forget to follow your lead as you guide us. We do things our way. We thank you because you forgive this rebellion. Remind us again of your saving grace through Jesus Christ. Help us to remember that as far as the east is from the west, that our sins have been so far removed from us, and that your steadfast love and your steadfast mercy have been poured out to us every single day. Amen. 
I'm now going to hand over to Karen Hart and Esther Henry. Karen's going to be interviewing Esther, who is one of our students. Good morning. Um, There are currently 15 of our church family who are studying at universities across the UK and Ireland. And hopefully at some point you'll be able to see a picture of these guys up on the screen behind. So I just want to take a few minutes this morning to think about our students and let you know how you can be praying for them this year. University, as many of you know, it can be an amazing time for young adults where they get to experience new people, cultures and ideas. For young Christians, however, it can be a challenging time as they figure out what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus away from the familiarity of family, friends, and home. So it would be great to hear from one of our students, and I'd like to invite Esther Henry to come up and answer a few questions. Thank you, Karen. Hello. (laughs) So can you tell us a bit about just what you're studying, where you're studying, and what year you're in? Yeah, no worries. Um, So I'm Esther. I am second year in Queen's University in Belfast, even not far, (laughs) and I am doing product design engineering. So no one really knows what that means, but it's okay, because neither (laughs) neither do I still, so it's okay. It sounds interesting anyway. (laughs) Um, So can you tell us what have been some of the highlights and some of the challenges of this last term? Um, yeah, we'll start with highlights. Um, I've honestly loved this term in comparison to last year just because of all the differences that the COVID restrictions made last year um, and how it's just back to normal in, in some sense anyway this year. Um, like being able to, to have classes in person and get to know my classmates. Um, I know that I'm not the only one completely bamboozled by all the lectures. Um, and just, yeah, getting to meet all the people that are CU members in Queen's. Um, and get to do CU with like 300 people every week is just so exciting. Um, I've really, really loved CU so far this year. Um, I'm just getting stuck into that, that role. Um, and yeah, I do, yeah, I think also moving into DV this year has been a massive blessing. Um, so Dara Volge is the Presbyterian Chaplaincy Halls um, at Queen's. And yeah, I really enjoyed it. Um, it's a really lovely group of people and just such an encouragement. Um, and yeah, they pr- they provide such a good um, like routine and um, yeah, just care for us as students, um, checking how we are and um, encouraging us in our walk with Christ. So yeah, I've really loved DV. Um, another really fun thing that's happened in the past week. Um, last Saturday, I got to witness one of my my friends that I lived with in Elms last year become a Christian. Um, which is just class. Like I, I have such a sense that God is at work um, in the people that I knew um, from last year, this year. Um, so it's so exciting to see just how, how God's moving in all the, the small things that are happening um, that couldn't happen last year because of COVID. So, yeah, very exciting. And then some of the challenges, basically just uni. Um, <laughs> the fact we have to get a degree is kind of a struggle. Um, like it's a lot of work um, and time management within that as well um, like there's so many things to think about within all the different modules and the assignments and deadlines but then also trying to enjoy your time and make the most of it um, and get to know people and invest in relationships um, and share Jesus with people and like there's a lot going on um, so I think just within all of that trying to find time to rest um, and time to spend just being filled back up um, one-on-one with God um, 
yeah, that's definitely been a challenge. Um, but a really great problem to have as well, because <laughs> um, there's so many lovely things to fill my time with. Um, so yeah, I would say that's probably the main the main struggle. Yeah. That's really great to hear, Esther, and it is amazing just to hear how God is really working through you while you're at university. Um, so lastly, how can we be praying for you just going forward from here? Um, yeah, I I think in terms of prayer, it's probably quite a universal thing for all students um, that we're trying to figure out a lot of things at this point in time, um, like what we're going to do with our lives, um, uh, who we're going to become, um, all these big questions. Um, so I think a lot of people that I, I'm chatting to on a regular basis are really struggling with these questions. Um, and yeah, trying to work out everything. So I think prayer for us as students as we navigate that and that we choose Christ in all of these decisions. Um, yeah, and that we we take the time to to let ourselves rest in not knowing um, and we're able to support each other in that. Um, because yeah, I think it can be quite complicated whenever there's so many different questions coming at you from all these different um, areas of life. So mm-hmm. that would probably be the main one. That's great. Thank you very much. Um, So we'll just take a minute now to pray for the students in the church. Father, thank you for Esther and for the 15 students that are members of our church family, who we know and love and want to commit to your care. Thank you that with the easing of restrictions, many have been able to return to -to face-to-face lectures and meeting with peers. We pray for protection from COVID for them, And for those who continue to be limited to online interactions, would you give strength and a special awareness of your presence with them? Father, as our Christian students seek to show others who you are, would you give them your spirit to help them find the words, grow their hearts in love for you, and would that love overflow into how they act and speak to those around them? We thank you for the work of the different Christian organisations working in university, and we pray particularly for the Christian unions, that you would guide and protect them as they plan how to be your mission team on campus. Thank you, Father, that we can entrust our students to your love. We pray that in every challenge, um, and particularly for those that are looking ahead to what's coming up after university, that they would be quick to turn to you and to see your loving care that you freely give each of us. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Esther. Um, Lizzie and Justin Livingston, who also work alongside me with the students, have prepared a booklet with information on each of the students and specific prayer points. This should be attached to the email next week and is a great resource to use to be able to know how to pray for the students for the rest of this year. Thanks. We're going to sing again now, and our next song is Be Bold, Be Strong, which, boys and girls, if I were to tell you a secret, I've been quite selfish in my choice of songs, because this was one of my favourites when I was a little girl at GB and Sunday Club. Another reason I've chosen it, though, is um, because today in church we're going to be learning more about Saul. He was a man who persecuted or was nasty to Christians. He caused havoc and went out of his way to try and have Christians captured and put in prison. But we heard last week that Saul had an encounter with God and he was totally transformed. So much that straight away he was bold. He began to tell others about Jesus. He spoke about Jesus fearlessly. So let's sing, Be Bold, Be Strong.
And I'll just say now that there's no Sunday club today, but if there are any children who didn't receive some of the colouring pages and pencils, there'll be some of those in the vestibule for you. Our reading now um, is taken from Acts 9, verses 19 to 31, and is entitled Saul in Damascus and Jerusalem. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he, joined, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him, and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them, and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. Amen. Thanks, Emma. Well, people change their minds all the time, don't they? Sometimes it can be something really small, like when Emma and I go to Al Gelato, or Cafe Mods, and she changes her mind about 12 times before she settles on her choice of ice cream, Emma's always the brunt of my jokes. Or it can be something really big, like what to study at university, or what career, what job um, to apply for. But whether our change of mind is big or small, we can be pretty sure it's never going to make it onto the evening news. Well, not that is, unless you are this woman. Her name is Leah Labresco. And in 2012, Labresco found herself on CNN and other news networks across the United States because she changed her mind. And if you can make out the headline here, you'll understand what she changed her mind about. Let me read it for those of you listening down the phone or on our podcast. It reads, Atheist becomes Catholic. Why she converted after a lifetime without God. Now, this in itself is not necessarily newsworthy, is it? I mean... Esther shared with us the news of her friend who came to faith this year. That didn't feature in the BBC News that evening. But what made this change of mind particularly interesting 
is that Labresco was no ordinary atheist, can we put it that way? She was, in fact, one of the atheist movement's emerging leaders. And she was quite a high-profile one in the States, thanks to her popular blog. In fact, just a few more months before this CNN interview, she'd been one of the headline speakers at a festival called Reason Rally, which has been described as Woodstock for atheists and skeptics. But no one attending that event or reading her blog could have known that beneath the veneer of committed atheism, Labresco was becoming increasingly unsure. She was a bit like the journalist Ian Hislop, who once quipped, I tried being an atheist, but I had too many doubts. It's a great line, isn't it? Labresco's doubts, interestingly, began as her Christian friends began questioning her insistence that morality is relative, that there's no objective right or wrong. And eventually, this questioning led her to a surprising conclusion. Here's what she wrote in her blog. Morality is something we discover like archaeologists, not something we build like architects. Christianity, for her, offered an explanation for it that was compelling. Now, what's especially interesting, I think, about this story and why I'm sharing it with you this morning is that this change of mind caused quite a bit of upset among her former atheist friends. I mean, if you look at the comment section on her original blog post, which I did this week, you'll find comments expressing utter astonishment and bafflement by her atheist former colleagues. Oh, this is sad news, wrote one. Another dismissed it as fake news. They refused to believe it. I'm calling troll, he wrote, until I see definitive evidence one way or the other. And one leading atheist blogger who had just a few weeks before praised her for her role at Reason Rally wrote an article called My Questions for Leah Labresco. And this is the point I want to highlight to you this morning. Labresco's conversion provoked questions. Lots and lots of questions. Because that's what a dramatic change of mind does. It invites bafflement, astonishment, and bewilderment from those looking on. And from that disorientation, questions emerge. And those questions can lead to new ways of thinking. And new answers can form. I think we see those sorts of questions at play in our reading for today. They're not on the surface of the text. Nobody really asks them out loud, but they are implied in the confusion that Saul's dramatic road trip evoked. I mean, if blogs had been written in Saul's day, we might expect some of his former allies to pen an article, My Questions for Saul of Tarsus. Because Saul's dramatic change of mind, which we read about last week, is just the sort of story that would have made the evening news in Damascus or Jerusalem. Because here's this high-profile opponent of the church becoming one of its most ardent defenders. Saul becomes a question that needs to be answered. This is a point that the theologian Willie James Jennings made in his commentary, which I was reading this week. Here's what he wrote. Saul became a question the moment he rose from the waters of baptism. Now that's an interesting way to think about Saul's conversion, isn't it? 
Saul became a question to those around him. And I think it's an interesting way for us to think about our own conversions too, because seeing Paul as a question to his former allies invites us to consider the extent to which we pose a question to the world around us. And that's what I want us to explore together as we take a look at just this first section of our reading, Paul in Damascus. And it's why I'm calling this sermon, The Question of Discipleship. So what is the question Saul poses? Well, it's multi-layered. In fact, we could say there are three different questions that kind of weave together here. And I'm calling them these. What happened? What is he saying? And what should we do with him? I want to walk through these three questions with you. Let's start with what happened. Well, if we go back to Leah Labresco for a moment, her change of mind among her atheist friends um, caused utter bewilderment and confusion. But if you just scratch the surface of that confusion, you'll discover something else, a sense of betrayal. And you know, I think that's exactly what we discover in Acts 9. On the surface, we read about astonishment, bewilderment among the diaspora Jews. Luke tells us they were astonished, in fact, when they heard Saul speak, when they heard his story. Is he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among all those who call on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? In effect, what they're asking here is, what happened? What happened to the Saul we thought we knew and understood? What happened to cause him to betray all that he stood for? Maybe we can understand the shock Saul was meant to be the champion of his people, wasn't he? The defender of the faith. He even had the blessing we read last week of the chief priests to purge the the scandal of Jesus from Israel. But now, well, Saul's life has become the scandal. His story is now caught up in the scandal of the gospel. And for his former allies, this is a great betrayal. Before, he was the defender of Moses and the prophets. And now, from their perspective, he's put himself in league with these blasphemers. What a betrayal, indeed. I wonder, have you ever thought of the ways in which your allegiance to Jesus might be regarded as a betrayal to those close to you with whom you once shared certain identities? I think that's especially true for those of us who did not grow up in a a Christian home or a Christian community because coming to faith in Christ, well, we will have shared lots of different values and customs and identities with the people around us before we came to faith. But after meeting Jesus, well, these things don't stay the same. Saul becomes Paul after all, doesn't he? And as he would go on to write in one of his letters, All who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. This means that in Christ the old has gone and the new has come. And for some, that can feel like betrayal. And those around us can ask, what happened? Shortly we'll see that this sense of betrayal is misplaced. There's a better conclusion, I think, to be drawn from lives transformed by grace. 
But we'll leave that for our final question. For now, I simply want to stress to you that the first question our lives in Christ should provoke is what happened? And I think what we need to ask ourselves today is whether our individual lives or our life together actually poses that question to people. Do people look at us and see such a work of transformation that they ask, what happened? What happened to bring about such change? So this brings us to our second question. What is he saying? In verse 22, we read that Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Messiah. So initially there had been astonishment at Saul's change of mind, and now there is bafflement at his words. What is he saying? If we could um, retell this little moment as an internet meme, it might look something like this. See it on the screen here. Apologize for using that, but I thought this baby was really cute. What are you saying? But the bafflement here is not because Saul is speaking gibberish. It's not that they don't understand the words he's speaking. It's not that they haven't heard him correctly. It's more that they can't believe that these words are coming out of the mouth of Saul. How can Saul possibly say this after all he said before? I think if you look closely at Luke's words, you'll you'll see that Saul's audience understands his meaning exactly. Saul was proving that Jesus is the Messiah, Luke tells us. In other words, Saul's argument was pretty tight. His language was clear, and his reasoning was sound. There was just little you could argue with. The problem for his hearers was that they just didn't like what Saul was saying. They didn't like the sound that he sounded, or the fact he sounded so right. They did not like what he was saying because it had implications for them. They were baffled because Saul's witness meant that they were no longer able to ignore this Jesus. Maybe they could have ignored the what happened. They could have come up with some rational explanation for Saul's experience on the road. Maybe in the same way those at Pentecost tried to dismiss it as some drunken shindig, do you remember? But the what is he saying? Well, that was proving much harder to explain or ignore. They could not so easily dismiss Saul's message. Let's not forget, Saul is by far one of the most accomplished teachers of his day. He's an expert in the law. His knowledge of scripture was unparalleled. And so it's hard to dismiss him when he begins explaining how that law and the prophets all in fact pointed towards this Jesus of Nazareth. And this revelation that Saul brings, that Jesus is the Christ, must have floored them, just as it floored Saul himself on that road to Damascus. And you see, for us, I think this means that if the first question our discipleship should provoke is what happened, the second must be, what are they saying? Because we've seen again and again in Acts that the miracle and the message go hand in hand. I mean, the miracle of grace that happens in our lives will mean little to those around us unless we explain it to them in words they can understand. And similarly, those words, our message, will have little impact unless it's preceded by that work of grace in our lives that is a sign and a wonder for all to see. 
I was thinking about this relationship between miracle and message as I read that incredible story of Leah Labresco. And it reminded me of another recent conversion of a well-known atheist this side of the Atlantic. Some of you might know this guy, A.N. Wilson. In 2009, Wilson published an article that shocked the atheist community here because it described his slow return to faith. In Why I Believe Again, he set out the arguments that helped him change his mind, how he came to accept the truth of the Christian message. But crucially, there was more than a message at play in his slow return to faith. At one point in the article, he writes this. But religion, once the glow of conversion had worn off, was not a matter of argument alone. It involves the whole person. Therefore, I was drawn over and over again to the disconcerting recognition that so very many of the people I had most admired and loved, either in life or in books, had been believers. What happened? What is he saying? The two questions go hand in hand in Acts. The miracle and the message. And so our final question, which emerges when these two questions come together. What should we do with him? That's the question those around Saul are forced to ask. Now that they know what happened, now that they've listened to what Saul has to say, they've no choice but to respond. And we're not surprised they respond the way they do. They'd learned it from Saul himself, after all. They do exactly what Saul conspired to do to the believers in Jerusalem. They try to kill him. You see, these men were trapped in their mistaken belief that, as we discussed earlier, Saul was betraying the cause. But what they fail to understand is that Saul's conversion is no betrayal at all. Yes, there's been a discontinuity with his old life. There's been a break of sorts. But there's also this great continuation. And on this point, maybe I could refer you back to last week's sermon. When I put a light question mark, you'll remember, around that word conversion. Because while it seemed like betrayal, in reality, it was a dramatic demonstration of faithfulness to the God of Israel and to the promise God made to Abraham. You see, with his encounter of Christ, Saul understands that Jesus, through Jesus, God has extended this promise of salvation to the whole world. And in fact, he's knitting up the stories of other peoples into his big story. This is not a betrayal. This is a great invitation to be opened up to a life that is far fuller and more expansive than we could imagine. And that's why this final question is so important. Because what should we do with him is not just about Saul. Really, it's a question about Jesus. The people are forced to ask, what shall we do with him? What shall we do with Jesus? Luke draws this parallel very subtly here. I love what he does, though. You'll remember I, re I challenge you to look out in Acts for ways in which Luke mirrors the story of the church with the story of Jesus and his gospel. Well, this is a great example of it. Because this account of Saul beginning his ministry in Acts 9 um, Luke very deliberately draws attention back to the beginning of Jesus' ministry 
in Luke 4. There we read how Jesus began to preach and teach in the synagogues, just like Saul. And we read that he astonished all those who listened, just like Saul. And we read how the people tried to kill him, just like they tried to kill Saul. They take Jesus to the brow of a hill in order to throw him off, but Jesus makes a miraculous escape, just like Saul. You see, this story reminds us that Jesus invited questions to those around him. He was not somebody that people could easily ignore. And when we commit to follow Jesus, just like Saul did, our lives invite questions too. What happened? What are you saying? What should we do with Jesus? You see, I'm becoming more and more persuaded that our job as disciples of Jesus in an increasingly post-Christian society is not to give the right answers, but to pose the right questions. After all, isn't this how we all came to faith? The Spirit of God confronted us with questions we could not ignore. A couple of weeks ago, I finished with some words from the writer and Presbyterian minister, Frederick Beekner, and at the risk of overusing him, I'm going to do so again, because in his book, Wishful Thinking, um, he makes this point in reference to those seeking answers about Christianity. Here's his advice to them. Don't start looking in the Bible for the answers it gives. Start by listening for the questions it asks. We are much involved, all of us, with questions about things that matter a good deal today but which will be forgotten by this time tomorrow, the immediate wheres and whens and hows that face us daily at home and at work. But at the same time, we tend to lose track of the questions about things that matter always, life and death questions about meaning, purpose and value. And to lose track of such deep questions as these is to risk losing track of who we really are in our own depths and where we are really going. There's perhaps no stronger reason for reading the Bible than that somewhere among all those India paper pages there awaits each reader, whoever he or she is, the one question which, though for years they may have been pretending not to hear it, is the central question of their life. I think what Bigner says here is true for all of us. Modern life mitigates against the opportunity to think about the really important questions of life. And that's why gathering together on a Sunday is so important for us. Because among other things, in this place, God carves out a space for us to be confronted with these questions, for grace to interrupt our lives, to break through the quotidian, or quotidian sorry, to pose questions like, what will it profit you? If you gain the whole world and lose your soul, Matthew 16. What is truth? John 18. Who is my neighbor? From Luke 10. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Of course, as important and crucial as these questions are, the truth is that people today are more likely to turn to Google than the Bible or the church. At least that's what Google would have us believe. Em and I were at the cinema last week and we saw a new ad by Google. Look out for it. Ask Google all the answers. 
But Acts 9 reminds us that by God's grace, he can also pose important questions through our lives of faith, obedience, and love. So if people are not turning to the Bible today the way we might like, if they're not walking voluntarily through the doors of church, then it's all the more important that we remember the question of discipleship. Because by nothing more than our faithful presence in the lives of friends, family, and neighbors, the Spirit can ask important questions. Questions that will initially appear to be about us, but which are in fact about Jesus. What happened to him? What is he saying? What should I do with him? Amen. I think we're going to sing together now our next hymn. And Emma, I'm sorry, I've forgotten what it is. Can you remind me? Across the Lands. Let's stand and sing together. Good morning, folks. I hope you're doing well. Um, what I want to do is chat to you about three things. Those are services next Sunday, voting next week, and then chat a quick chat about the United Appeal, okay? I am hoping by now most of you will know that the Reverend Graham Kennedy is coming to preach next Sunday, that's Sunday the 7th of November, as the sole nominee for becoming minister in Kirkpatrick. You guys as the congregation get to vote after that, but the important thing is that we think about how you guys get to hear him, okay? Next Sunday, there will be three services. There will be the 10 o'clock service, the 11.30 service, and the 7 p.m. service. And most of you will know that we split our DGs across two weeks. So in essence, we're trying the magic trick of fitting four services into three and seeing how that will go. That raises some challenges for, for all of us, okay? And we want to try and be as gracious as possible to allow as many people as possible to come and be able to hear them. With that in mind, can I make you aware that the 11.30 a.m. service is going to be the service with most of the children's ministries at that. So there will be Sunday club provision at that and creche provision is at that. And so can I encourage you, if you are a family with Sunday club age children, then that's the service to book into. If you are not a family with Sunday club aged children, I'm struggling with that. If you're not a family of Sunday club aged children, then that's not the service to book into, okay? Um, the first two morning services will be relatively similar in content, and then we're going to have an evening service, which will be a different um, passage that we'll be looking at, and also an opportunity for Graham to be interviewed. So just want you to be aware of that. If there is need for children's provision at the 10 o'clock service, we will explore that um, during the week, and we hope to be able to provide that if that is necessary. But in order to get as many folks to hear everything at the various services and so on, in a way, we want to really only run, it, run children's um, provision at that second service. With that in mind, can I encourage you to come along, okay? We want you to be part of this important moment in the life of our congregation. Be there. Let's hear Graham. Let's come um, expecting that God will speak to us from his word and through Graham. And um, so do plan to be at one of those services. It would be great to see you there. With that in mind, I need to chat to you a wee bit about voting. 
Um, we had chatted about whether we would need a congregational meeting and all of those kind of things. Actually, having got back to PCI and the East Belfast Presbytery and with rising COVID cases and so on, actually the whole process is entirely by post. Um, so there, we will be sending out postal voting forms towards the end of this week. You may receive them prior to the Sunday morning, but we would be, you should, at least everybody should have received it by the Monday at the latest. And what we would love you to do is, after you've heard Graham on the Sunday, fill in those forms and post them back. We will give you a stamped addressed envelope to post them back. Um, but equally, if you're not able to get to the post office but are able to drop it into the church office, um, we're able to do that as well. I chatted to you about keeping aside the Tuesday and the Thursday evenings. The good news about the postal vote is that you just need to return it by post and enjoy the Sabbath rest of that Tuesday and Thursday evening that you now have off. There's a lot of detail in that. As ever, if there are any questions, don't hesitate to come and chat to me at the end of the service. Or if there's any questions, don't hesitate again to chat to the office during the week and so on. But the important thing is, what do we need to do next Sunday is attend one of those services. And then after that, you've got to vote. Can I also encourage you just, if you're a bit of a church suite reluctant user... This is the kind of week where we really need you to use it, okay? Um, so please either sign on to Church Suite and let us know which church service you're coming to, or if you usually chat to the guys at the door and book into the subsequent week, make sure you do that this morning as you're leaving so that we can really plan to get as many people along to hear, those, hear Graham at those services next week. Final thing about that is, can we guard our emails fairly carefully, okay? So you will have noticed that you got two emails from Kirkpatrick this week. That's relatively rare, but we wanted to highlight just the United Appeal. And I prefer using the old name, which was the United Appeal for Mission of PCI, because that's the stuff that as a, con as a group of 500-plus congregations throughout Ireland, we're able to do stuff through that United Appeal together that we as a congregation can't do as individuals. So that's the stuff that surely talks about a global mission. If you read the email, surely talks about global mission and how PCI has missionaries in various parts of the world. But it's also the stuff that allows PCI to speak into our society at all levels of our government, whether that's in the Doyle or in Stormont or in local councils. It's also the thing that means as Presbyterians we can work together to provide support to some of the most vulnerable in our society, whether that's through homeless projects, residential homes, or working with young offenders or addiction services. I always think the danger of these announcements is it robs the sermon of some of its power, but thinking about this, actually what we were learning about this morning when we looked at Acts was the Holy Spirit being able to transform our lives, our community, and our world so that the world out there asks, what should we do with him? What should we do with this Jesus? And one of the things about the United Appeal is as Presbyterians, we can do some of the stuff that has the world asking, what should we do with this man, Jesus? Thanks very much for your time. Any questions, give me a shout. Thanks, Gareth. We'll spend some time now praying for others. We'll pray for Graham, our congregation as a whole, um, alongside our students' ministry and also the United Appeal, which Gareth has just mentioned. Let's pray. Lord God, 
You're a faithful God, and we have experienced your faithfulness to us as a congregation. The last year has been hard, but you have sustained us. We thank you for bringing us to this point, and we pray that you would grant us wisdom and discernment in the coming weeks. We pray for Graham and his family, that you would be with them as they prepare to visit Kirkpatrick next week. We ask that you bless Graham as he preaches, and grant us wisdom as we consider him as our next minister. Lord God, we pray for the United Appeal. We are thankful for many of our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world and locally too that benefit from our giving and how it has impacted members of our Kirkpatrick congregation as well. We pray for the ongoing work of the United Appeal, that God would be glorified through the various partnerships and projects and that your gospel would be preached. We pray that we would reach our financial target as a church to continue this amazing work. So stir our hearts, Lord, to give generously and sacrificially from all that we have been given from you. Lord God, we pray for our students and we pray that you would bless each and every one that appeared on the screen earlier on in the service. We pray for the challenges and hardships that they face these days some as a result of the pandemic, but we praise you for the progress that has been made and just hearing from Esther um, of all the things that have um, she's been able to do this year. We pray that you help our students in all things to grow in love and knowledge of Jesus and grant them boldness to live godly lives amongst their peers. Be with them, Lord, and sustain them. Lord God, lastly, we pause and we pray for those who we know personally who need our prayers. Lord God, hear our prayers. Amen. Our final song now is called What Grace is Mine. Let's stand and sing in response to God's word that we have heard this morning. Thank you so much for joining us today to worship our God and amazing Saviour. Let me read a few verses from Second John by way of benediction. Grace, mercy and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. Amen. <laughs>